Thanks for downloading this podcast from Brum Radio. For more programs, search our podcast page at brumradio.com. Welcome to the Brum Radio Book Show, your monthly look at all things bookish, and with me, Mike Gale. Oh, and me, Blake Woodham, I almost forgot my own name there, this is a bad start. Um, please remember, you, this is an interactive show, so we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet us at, at Radio underscore books, or email us at bookclub at brumradio.com. And let us know what you're, you're enjoying, what you're not liking, what you want more of, what you what you want less of, if that's even possible. Um, <laughs> We've also, we, we do have a full-time media, social media, what's the word, Maven, uh, in Andrew Grucroc here, who's going to be answering your tweets. If you tweet to us, he will personally answer to them and possibly come around your house and make you a cup of tea. Oh, that, that sounds too good to turn down. Um, so... Usual structure for the show, we've got the book of the month, and this month it's Forgetting the Whale by John Ironmonger. It's Can not, it's what? not Forgetting the Whale. It's not Forgetting the Whale. You must, you I forgot have. the whale. <laughs> not Forgetting the Whale by I, um, John Ironmonger. It looks, it looks, i tell you what, it, that book is a, it's a really interesting um, kind of case study. If you look at the cover... Yeah, you think it's uh, one thing. You yeah. look, and then, But no, it's been uh, re-released with a different cover, completely different style... Um, evokes and, it's, and that that very much sums up the book. It's a brilliantly uncategorizable book, actually. Oh well, interesting. We, we should talk covers actually mm. because that that is, um, and I, I'm sure Stuart will have something to say about that because uh, it's it's a it's a publishing little ploy there that they uh, make things look new. But we'll, yes. t- we'll talk about that. Um, also, um, we've got uh, so he's going to be talking about his semi-apocalyptic novel. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have a, this month's blog spot is from the post-apocalyptic book club. Mm. Now they're really interesting. So they're I a, bet they are. They're a book group in London who, who yeah, they just do uh, post-apocalyptic books. But what um, what's interesting about that, of course, is as, as they as they point out, is that covers all so many genres. So there's like historical versions, there's horror, there's sci-fi, there's comedy, there's there's kind of romances, all of which uh, against the backdrop of the apocalypse. So, right, so they're not just reading books about, you know, Planet of the Apes. And no, just, you know, that's it, they read all the, the classics, but then there's yeah. also, you know, all that kind of extra stuff, you know, Fantastic. kind of different ways of looking at it. So, so they've got a, a really interesting uh, blog spot feature for us. And also we've got in the house, Stuart. Hello. He's been you. away. He's been away doing things. And um, I'm sure he's going to tell us more about that. And also in the house is Catherine. Hello. And, uh, of course, um, she'll be doing her debut uh, this month is Kismet by Luke Treadget. Is that right? Treadget? 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 Shall I just say it? Yeah, just, just keep saying it. Trigget, trigget. Uh, if you're fully, if you're aware of the pronunciation of this, uh, novel, yes. Um, or e- in fact, even if you are Luke, please uh, let us know exactly how you pronounce your your surname. Apologies for the um, unbelievable. So Catherine will be research. talking about that, and um, yeah, that is going to be the show. Yes. So um, so yes, tweet us your thoughts, your contributions. If you've read either of these books I'm not sure Kismet has actually been released yet yeah it's not out until May okay but um, this will hopefully whet your appetite so Blake how have you been what have you been up to um, tell us about your bookish month my bookish month um, well one of the things that we've been uh, that Andrew and I have been working on is um, our recording of uh, fiction writers uh, from the Ooh. region so right, we okay. have um, been listening we've been reading a lot of short fiction and recording some of them um, with music and special effects and so forth. And they're soon ready for us to play on air. And they are going to be brilliant, I have to say. Sounds very, very interesting. Mm. So that I've been doing that. Um, and I'm also looking forward to tomorrow hosting the event for the launch of Kit Wall's um, latest book, The Trick to Time, which has been already long-listed for the Women's Prize. And, very exciting. Um, Lots of good. There was a big article about it in the Observer at the weekend, and I think there's going to be a lot of people there. So that is tomorrow at I think six thirty at Waterstones here in Birmingham. If you are thinking of coming along to that, do contact them first because I think the tickets are very low in number. I mean, as in there's not many left. Not there's not many gone. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's just only left ten at a time. So yeah, that's it. What about you, Mo? What have you been up to? Um, I've mainly been um, editing. 
um, my latest book. Well, actually, I, it's, a, it's a kind of weird process. So uh, I'm currently editing a book that's going to be coming out in a year, but I've also <laughs> been doing some publicity and getting ready for the book that is coming out. Um, the Man I Think I Know, which is coming out in April. And uh, so it, I've been having to have two different heads on. So I'm thinking about answering questions about a book I wrote, finished writing a year ago, mm-hmm. while editing the book that I'm currently writing. And um, it, it's funny, I don't know how you find it, Catherine, but um, I find that once I've finished writing, I sort of jettison all the characters and their lives and their problems. Yeah. And I'm into these ones. And so people are asking me about things that have happened in my current book, uh, the book that's just about to come out, and I'm just like, I've got no idea what they're on about. Do you ever... Sorry, Catherine. No, I was just going to say, I think, you know, for me, I'm so unproductive. Uh, There's such such long gaps between the books that, yeah, I I barely remember the names of the characters. But I don't know if I really have that overlap problem. I think I would find that really confusing because, yeah, I just churn out a word a week, basically. (laughs) But, I mean, if somebody asked you about, um, say, someone from... um, your first novel yeah um would you remember would you know what that you know would you know what they're on about um generally i do yeah I do. Oh, yeah that's good. yeah generally yeah i sometimes get the names wrong because I, I always find it's, it's it's almost like they feel people who've read it feel like they've ha- they're having a conversation with you yeah. and have been in your head yeah. and so they kind of talk to you as if you know exactly what they're talking about and you go well actually i wrote that four years ago and i've not got a clue and, and obviously Mike you've written a sequel as well or at least one hasn't you your book where, where you've returned to the characters yes yes I mean how does that work I mean do you do you sit there and you think um, I don't remember them at all or can you get back into the headspace of a, of a person you addressed like um, 10 years in, ago in that case I, ha- I had to reread for the first time and that that was a, a real shocker you know it's like <laughs> returning to the signal of the crime returning um, to your own vomit <laughs> exactly like a dog to its own vomit <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's not a, it's not a thing. It, it's not a thing you enjoy because obviously um, you, you can see all the things that you would have loved to have changed. Whereas you know, obviously, readers um, look at it in a slightly different thing. Uh, the other thing I've been doing is, is doing publicity, and um, uh, I won't tell you <laughs> what it is. But when you have when you when you've when you've written a novel, you have to kind of pitch to kind of get any sort of publicity, and. Uh, so I, I pitched a bunch of things that I, I hoped nobody would take any interest in. And of course, um, <laughs> that, that hasn't happened. And so uh, we've had the Daily Mail round. And uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I won't tell you what it is, but it, it's out in the next few weeks. And um, you, We can't do that. That means we'd have to buy the Daily Mail. No, no, you can, look on, you can look online. You can give them a few hits. Um, oh, does it involve cookery or something? It was excruciating to do uh, as oh, as it was to um, my week. Yeah, but uh, it, but thank you, Daily Mail, for for giving me the thing. But um, it was quite painful uh, for me. Uh, actually, less so for me, more so for the other people involved. I'll leave it at that. Oh, <laughs> this is this is going to be great. Um, and so, when's the book actually out? Uh, the, the book is out on uh, uh, April. 18th, uh, I think that's a Thursday. So that's a couple uh, of weeks. And, um, lots of people have said some very kind things about are it. You, are you having an event? A massive, big up. I'm not sure, I don't think so. Um, we might do some things uh, later for the paperback, but um, uh, lots of people have said some really nice things about it, so I'm really right. looking forward to that. Um, so we, we, we're going to move on now, and we're, we're going to talk to Stuart. How are you, Stuart? So this is Stuart well, Bartholomew you. from Waterstones and Poetry <laughs> Fame. Yes, yes, indeed. You've been away, haven't you, for the last uh, well, a few shows? I Where missed, have you been? I missed the last one. I'm, I'm normally here, I think. Uh, I do in body, if I do not in mind. Every so often. No, we, we had the Verve fe- Second Verve Festival in February, and um, it was really successful. But that's really, your poetry really festival. Really time-consuming. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's got it gets bigger and bigger each of the two years we've had it so yeah just really enjoying that and and verve have launched their own press verve poetry press round of applause yes 
Um, I've got, I have it Sorry, in my hand. Um, it all radiates outwards. Uh, the Verve Anthology of City Poems. Yeah, yeah, and that came out of a competition we ran for the festival. So we launched that at the festival. Lots of people in the book came and read. Great event. Yeah. Really is there going to be more? Are there going to be more? Yeah. So, well, one of the th- one of the events I want to mention is um, April twentieth at the store. We're launching our first two collections, and right. it's uh, Birmingham authors that we're focusing on. So, two poets, uh, Mira Saleh and uh, Casey Bailey, yeah. who are both excellent local poets, very performancey, but they've written two amazing collections. So, they'll be launching on that day. So, so you two full books. Two full books, that's one each. Yeah, exciting. It's great. And what are they? What are they called? Two books. Uh, one's called "I'm Not From Here." That's Amira Saleh because she's uh, Birmingham Yemeni and has uh, "Where I'm From" issues. And Casey Bailey's is called "Adjusted," and he's he's a Nationals boy, but he's uh, managed to scrape his way along the pavement to somewhere nice <laughs> near <laughs> Mary Hill. <laughs> where, where, where is it you come from again? <laughs> yeah, where Nichols. <laughs> Nichols, is it? Yeah. God, I'm from nowhere. I'm from <laughs> South London. Don't well, let's, let's move on. <laughs> so um, what about book events? What, what, what book events have you got coming up this well, week? Well, so the other big one in April is we've got Raymond Feist coming to sign. Um, he's, it's on April the 23rd. He's got a new book. Um, which is called King of Ashes, and it's the first of a new trilogy called The Firemane Saga. So he's visiting us again. Fantastic. And then it's a bit quiet in the store because there's the Birmingham Literary Festival coming. Mm. All right, you don't want to have a battle between... Well, we tend to uh, work with them rather than against them. This is the kind of the Birmingham Mini Literature Festival, isn't it? Because they do a larger one. spring one. They've they've just done that the last two years, and and it's working really well for them. They do slightly different things in the spring, so... It's a really good festival. Starts on the 27th of April. Yeah, featuring Satham Sangara, uh, Jenny Murray. Uh, there's a Me Too Poetry Festival. Uh, Sally Vickers is going to be talking. Uh, the Swimming Suffragettes. That sounds interesting. And, Alec, uh, and Alexi Sale and um, Kit the Wall. Mm. And of course, the Kit the Wall one is tomorrow and uh, we're involved. So. Doubly uh, exciting. Have you got any uh, other events, Blake? Um, to be honest with you, no. That's no? it. Okay, we'll move well, it on. Well, <laughs> well, um, nothing else to say. Catherine, Catherine's got an event. Um, yeah, there's a one-day creative writing workshop, which is on the 28th of April in Peterborough. Is that kind of just about in our... It's not really in our well, area, I'd we, say. We count it. <laughs> we, 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 you know. Um, like, if Manchester can have Preston, then I think <laughs> we can have... Uh, so it's um, with the writing magazine. It's called Start Your Story, and it's aim to help people get started on their next novel um they spend the day feeling inspired by fellow writers and professional speakers and there are what they describe as fun creative activities i don't know about you but i love fun creative activities (laughs) Uh, they're my favorite sort of creative activities um there's also um there's an event called uh, a two-day a two-day event called mind reading the role of narrative in mental health and that's taking place at the university of birmingham on the 18th and 19th of june this year uh, and I presume it, it, it does what it says on the can. Um, also, booking is now open. Uh, I think we've mentioned this before for Arvon writing courses and retreats for 2018. Uh, people doing courses include uh, none other than um, Inua Ellums, who I know Stuart is a big fan of, uh, Mark Haddon, um, Joel Taylor, Andrew McMillan, uh, Jen Ashworth, David Quantic, mm-hmm. um, the comedy writer, and of course me. So who I'm you. a big fan of. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you very much. That's very kind of you. So uh, that is all for events. Excellent. Well, shall we turn to our book of the month? Yes, and uh, just remind uh, just remind people uh, that we can. Please feel free to let us know what you're doing. <laughs> Not what you're doing right now, but um, can do. what you're thinking of the show. Um, you can email us at uh, brookclub at bromradio.com or tweet us at brumradio underscore books. And so we're going to be talking about... Not forgetting the, book, the world. Not forgetting. So, um, you enjoyed it, I take it? I did enjoy it. It's, yeah. a very, um, it's a very interesting kind of bunch of contradictions. It's one of these books that I found very hard to read. I'm, in, in, in Honestly, I, my, my sister bought it for me for my birthday, oh, right. which was September. Um, so I read it quite a long time ago, yeah. and I thought, oh, I'll need to reread it for this. But it really stayed with me. I've probably read you know, 15, 20 books in between. Um, and this one is, is the one that it keeps going back to in my mind. It's really uh, had a, a kind of a real... Uh, 
long uh, residence in my head. Uh, it's a really interesting book. It's been described as semi-apocalyptic um, for reasons which um, best to be explained by the author. So um, let's have an introduction to the novel by uh, John Ironmonger himself, who I spoke to over the phone. Um, the book is very kind of rural, bucolic in its aspect. It's set in a, a small Cornish village. Because of that, we had our um, interview via a mobile phone where the reception was terrible and John was having to sort of hang off the roof of the building. <laughs> so apologies if some of the sound quality slightly fades because of that. But uh, here's John introducing Not Forgetting the Whale. It's a story set in Cornwall, set in a very small little village right at the remote tip of Cornwall, um, a village that seems and feels almost like the end of the world. And in this village, a man is washed up on the shore naked. When he finally comes round, it turns out that he fled the city of London, bringing what he thinks is going to be a, uh, a financial collapse, a collapse of civilization that he believes is going to happen. And uh, slowly he convinces the villagers in, in this little town that this is going to happen. And slowly they start to believe him and they uh, they take him to their to heart and they seal the village up against the apocalypse. And... Um, um, there is also a whale that comes in from time to time and, uh, and plays a, a very important part in the plot, but I won't spoil it by telling you. That sounds really amazing and really intriguing. Um, was it difficult to get... A, it sounds like a, quite a difficult book to get into. Um, not not really. As I, say, I think the problem is it's more the fact that your expectations are really thrown all over the place. So again... It, it, for those of you, the cover is very brightly coloured. It looks like it's a sort of very much a kind of um, like seaside. A novel, yes, exactly. It looks like a yeah. sort of seaside romance, yeah. and it is in the, in many ways that book as well. But it is it's all manner of other things as well. Um, and I think if it hadn't been recommended to me, I admit I probably I might not have picked it up. Yeah. But uh, as I say, it was given to me on my birthday, and um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. It's kind of it, it tells the story of of despair. Um, and it has this, you know, this terrible opening of this guy washed up on a beach, and his world has collapsed, and he gets slowly rebuilt. And it just sounds, on paper, like it's going to be relatively not trite. That sounds really harsh, but um, I, I thought I would, I would know where it was going to go, and it didn't go in that direction at all. So yeah, it's a really, um, it's, it's, it's as I say, it's really sort of stayed with me as as there's a fundamental um, theme running through it of optimism real sense of humanity as worthwhile as people as fundamentally decent that um is it flies in the face of almost everything i ever normally read <laughs> um and so that was the thing i think that find that that was a bit of a shocker for me it was like oh look here's someone who actually believes in humanity and yeah. um and is prepared to to you know prove it and, and it's not None of this stuff is. I mean, I think that there's a danger that you can look at that stuff and say it's very cynically easy to say we're all just everything's lovely and there's, there's butterflies and love in the air. And this book doesn't do that. You know, it, it it deals with lots of difficult things, but fundamentally, you can tell that the writer has this this true belief that the world is, you know, is a decent place and the people in it are are fundamentally decent. So, yeah. Well, that sounds like a, a brilliant point to jump off and to hear the second part, uh, the first part of our interview with mm-hmm. John Ironmonger. He's going to be talking about not forgetting the whale, and uh, here's the next part of our interview. The book does open with quite a remarkable sequence featuring a whale. It seems like that image is very strong. Did it? Where did that come from? Was that something that that came before the rest of the story? It did. It did. And, and I mean, I think I make no uh, secret of the fact that the book is very loosely hung around the story of Jonah and the whale. Um, but strangely, that idea of Jonah and the whale didn't come to me until I was some way into writing it. I, I already had the idea of the whale being washed up on a beach and uh, and the idea that this um, interloper, this newcomer to the village, could work his way into the trust of the villagers by helping them rescue the whale. So it was, it was a great undertaking uh, of a whale being washed up on the beach and, and the whole village being required to, to push and shove and dig and and, and get the whale back into the water. And uh, the actions of Joe, who's the, who's the hero of the story, in helping him do that, that kind of wins him a place in their hearts. And that uh, I, I really rather like the idea of the whale, the whale being this enormous great leviathan from the deep. And slowly, the more I got into the story and the more I got into the plot, the more I thought the whale was a sort of metaphor for lots of other things besides. Um, so, yes, the whale became quite an important part of the story. You mentioned the word leviathan there. Um, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan seems to be a reference point to the book as an epigram at the beginning about it, but it sounds like you're, you don't agree with Thomas Hobbes. 
No, I mean, Thomas Hobbes had this very depressing view of humanity, really, and I think I just wanted to make um, that point right at the beginning in, in terms of it being an apocalyptic novel. Uh, and most apocalyptic novel, novels are, are very Hobbesian in their nature. They take the view that, um, you know, that life is brutish and short and that human nature is to basically tear ourselves apart. Um, and, and, and really, I think what this novel is trying to present is a different view of humanity, a, a view where humanity actually pulls together and, uh, and gets through hardship. Um, in a way that perhaps might take people by surprise. Well, quite. I mean, we're so used to seeing the kind of Mad Maxian view, if you like, of, of the apocalypse. This feels quite transgressive in the way that you regard people as fundamentally good and decent and, and working together. Did you Have you received any kind of reaction to that? Any Anyone kind of shocked or upset by well, that? It's, it's funny how many people say to me how, how much they agree with it. And I, and, I, and I do think, you know, much though I love, I love the apocalyptic novels and apocalyptic films as much as anybody, really, and it, but I always find myself saying, you know, people wouldn't behave like this. You know, people are always roaming around shooting each other on sight and, uh, and, and the whole idea that, that we get so suspicious of one another and so, um, so terrified of, of each other just doesn't strike me as being human nature, really. And I think if you look at times where we have been through periods of crisis like the Blitz, you know, I think people pulled together. And, and I have a feeling that if we were to have another apocalypse, that's what would happen again. I think people would pull together. And, um, and I think perhaps we're, we're a nicer species than we give ourselves credit for some of the time. Uh, and so, yes, I think generally the reaction has been nice to have a story that, that looks at the apocalypse from a slightly different uh, point of view and really makes it rather a pleasant place to be. Do you think we need more positivity in fiction? Do you think there is a, a tendency to the Hobbesian in the way that we we write about ourselves? Um, jolly good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not. I'm, I'd be cautious to say we need anything more of anything in fiction. Really, I think you know, fiction uh, is, is there to tell you know a thousand different stories and and, and does it very well. And I think um, I think this is just a different viewpoint. I think it's important to have to have apocalyptic fiction that that uh, warns us of the horrors, uh, just as it is important to have a counterpoint that, uh, that celebrates humanity. You're listening to the Brum Radio Book Show, and that was John Eimunger, the author of Not Forgetting the Whale, which is this month's book of the month. Um, so, like, this book sounds almost something like a, a fairy tale. Mm. Uh, would you say that it's realistic? It's, it's, that's one of the, the, the other things about it that was fascinating. It has this... I, thought, I don't want to say magical realism, not least because I don't really know what that term means, but it has this, you know, there's a whale in it that keeps coming back. There's a fantastical element to yeah. it. It's also been recounted. So there's a framing device where it's been recounted 50 years into the future um, by the residents of this village. And so it's become a sort of legend, a legend, and no one knows whether it's true or not, and how much of it is true. And what, you know, so there's the stories that this guy's came in riding the whale and all this sort of stuff. So it, it creates that sense of it being a kind of. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. What matters is the stories we tell, and that's kind of what the central, the, the central feeling of the book is. Is this idea that you know the actual literal truth is less important to us than stories, and that's why we read fiction, isn't it? It's like you know we know these things didn't actually happen. But what we what we want to do when we read them is find, you know, is, is to either be transported to another place or taken out of our existence or given some kind of truth about the world, and whether it actually happened or not is, is of less importance. So that's kind of the sense in which it is, and that's that very much forgive it makes it makes you more forgiving as you read it about the fact that these people are essentially carrying on throughout the apocalypse without really noticing anything's happening. So that's the great thing is the the the, the kind of we never know whether it actually happens or not. They're basically just in this tiny little village and they just like pull a little chain across the road that leads into them and just says, that's it, we'll just, we'll just carry on. And no one, nothing really much happens. So it's not really clear whether it really is. And that's what's really fascinating because it doesn't have this kind of, you know, these gang rampaging gangs of, of motorcycle hooligans. It's just, it's just them carrying on. And, you know, the, the, the main thing they notice is the broadband doesn't work. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. So, um, yeah, this, this whole thing about the apocalypse is a really interesting kind of um, way of looking at it as well is whether it happens or not, you know, is, is, is it important? I don't know. In the interview, John, John there mentioned Hobbes. Um, I, I'm not, you know, particularly I favor with Hobbes, but I get the sense that, um, is not particularly optimistic outlook on yeah. So, so Thomas Hobbes' um, Leviathan is is this kind of political treatise about you know he says that without kind of authority and social order, we our lives would be nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, and the symbol of the of the Leviathan in the novel is is the um, 
it's the whale, but also it symbolises Jonah and the whale and new life and stuff. And he's clearly, I think, you know, John Ironmonger in this book is, is very much saying, you know, it's not like that. And he talks about things, you know, when you, when you, in the interview there he references things like the Blitz, which, you know, pretty apocalyptic. And if you live through that, it must mm. have felt like the end of the world. People didn't, you know, eat each other. Um, you know, uh, they they did pull together and, and survive. And and, he, and so it is, it's kind of like a kind of rebuttal to that sort of Thomas Hobbes view, which does sound very kind of um, highbrow and pretentious, but it's not like that at all as well. It's a very entertaining novel, very enjoyable. Well, it's certainly left me wanting to hear more uh, from John Ironmonger. And so here we indeed have some more from John Ironmonger on not forgetting the whale. It strikes me that you're saying with this that the stories we tell about each other are, are in some ways more than more important than quote unquote the truth of what happened. Do you agree with yes, that? Yes, and, and one of the characters in the story is a novelist, and, and um, she very much believes that uh, you know the power of the story is more important than the power of, of the truth, um, uh, which I suppose is a is a, it's just an interesting viewpoint. I think you're right in your in the way you framed the question that the what what makes the stories powerful is that the sense that they that, you know they have a narrative that's all their own, something that belongs and identifies them in a, in a way that sometimes true stories don't have. The story itself is, is something of an allegory. I, you know, I don't necessarily expect people to take it um, too seriously. It's, it is, it is, it is a, a, a modern myth, in a sense. This, this book is very much set in a, in a small uh, village, a small town. It feels like, as you describe it, it's sort of on the edge of the world. The character flees London, um, and in doing so, kind of, recovers his humanity in a way do you is do you think city life is bad for us do you think this book would work in a big metropolis um i don't think that you could write this story in a big metropolis it, it does need a kind of cast of characters and that cast of characters needs to know every you know all the other characters it needs to be a small tight community i i was i was 17 when my parents retired to a little village in cornwall to Novigissing in cornwall and my father bought a a grocery store there in the middle of town and and you can imagine a 17 year old boy suddenly being dropped into this little tiny remote um, village community in Cornwall that wasn't something that I'd welcomed at all at that time and that age um, but remarkably quickly I found um, that I that I belonged there in, in a way that I'd never expected that, that everybody knew each other everybody everybody knew um, you know And, um, and I think that was, you know, ever since living there for that period of time, it was only for a few years, I've always wanted to write about it and to write about that kind of small community and how a community like that can, um, can, can be self-supportive in the way that uh, this particular village in the novel is. So that was John Ironmonger talking about his novel, Not Forgetting the Whale. Before we talk a little bit more about the book, uh, let's say an official welcome to Catherine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. Uh, Catherine earlier accused me of being cheesy. So. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's made me want to listen to a little bit more of the interview. <laughs> right, I was just trying to be efficient, sorry. <laughs> How are you? How's, your, how's your writing month been? My writing month has been... Or as reading month, indeed. Has, as, as many writing months have been recently, but a little thin on the ground, a little thin <laughs> on the ground in the writing. I'm kind of enjoying... Uh, as, as Father Ted would say, a good long rest. <laughs> a good long rest from her, which I am actually. I do enjoy the resting from writing quite a lot. Actually. Oh, it's good though. It's it good. is good. Um, so I don't know whether I still technically I'm a writer when I'm resting from writing. I think I am because obviously I'm having very writerly thoughts, but doing yeah. very little actual writing. Now, one of the things that we, we we've been talking about. Sorry, can I just borrow the book, please? Um, is the the difference between the kind of cover of. The hardback of Not Forgetting the Whale, which I'll, I'll just get it. Nope, there's a pink handbag. So the original hardback cover is yeah. is a kind of... I'm, I'm, no, I'm no art describer. It's sort of an etching, is it? So yeah. It's, a sort of, it's um, very slightly Stanley Donwood-ish, isn't that's it? it? There that it kind is. of, yeah. and, and it has yeah. a sort of, you know, kind of, yeah, it looks almost like a sort of 19th century... Yeah. Um, and then the... Well, I'm, the I'm guessing there must be referencing... Um, Hobbes. You know, there's all many of clever things yeah. that have been referenced in this book um, that, that I'm, that's flying over my head. And then the um, the, the paperback has got this kind of quite jolly, mm. almost jaunty you know, seaside, jaunty. I'm on holiday sort of novel yeah. vibe. And I just wanted to ask you about your novels and jackets. Yeah. And 
did you know? What, did you have different covers for your hardback jacket and your your mass market jacket? Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you know the publisher will often go for a cover that has absolutely no, perhaps there's no resonance resonance for the author themselves, or or, or even for the readers. Like I remember you saying when you were reading this book, Blake, how gosh the cover's really misleading, you know. And I remember I think with my second novel the cover was just the original cover was just an enormous pigeon on the front and there was at no point was a pigeon mentioned in the book but they chose that because they said it was warm and english which is what they wanted to convey i don't feel warm or english i should say but that's (laughs) what they wanted (laughs) to convey about my book so it's they have quite strange often it will just be two key words they're trying to get across that aren't necessarily pertaining to the novel directly but also as well is it's refer you know it's that it's that creating those connections with other books and um we are big fans of the show of um laura barnett's greatest hits which when it was released in hardback it is very much like a sort of looks like a classic album cover because it is about music the paperback version which has just come out is essentially a cover version, if you like, of her first novel, Versions of Usher's Success, which is a different colour, because it's presumably evoking connections to that, even though the book itself is quite different. So um, it's, it's, it must be a treacherous... I actually asked John Ironmonger about that, and he just said, you know, with books, the, the publishers show at you, and your, and your expectation is to say, that's lovely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I suspect maybe it's until you get to become Lee Child that you get the opportunity to really, really change things around, or is that not the case? What's your take on it, Stuart? Well, I think as, as a book man, yeah, yeah. So you can tell when publishers are struggling with covers. Um, it often relates to um, whether the book fits neatly into a kind of genre or niche. And um, you know, this one certainly sounds a lot more complicated than most books of its ilk, and, and more interesting, more thoughtful. And but they're obviously trying with this one to to get that kind of summer read feel for mm. it. And you know, I think. Um, for me, marketing departments can be woefully wrong, yeah. and um, it's really interesting to see how that pans out. When an author's really established, suddenly their look is established as well, and yeah. it all clicks, and you just know where you are then, don't you? But I think at the same time, it, it's it's sort of a, an attempt to freshen things up, I suppose, because you know you've had a book in in, in hardback that people get used to the image, and then obviously when it comes to paperback, you you want to you're talking to two different audiences mm-hmm. there are people who never buy hardbacks there are people who only buy softbacks and so i suppose you sort of want to speak to everybody mm-hmm. at, the, at the same time it's quite an interesting thing so about the book mm-hmm. going back to the book um what standout moment for you in the book i think it's the it's 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 the the, the whale itself is a great great image it the, the 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 kind of way in which the, the main character Joe becomes kind of um, part of this village is the whale is washed up on the beach and and he has to kind of um, muster everybody to come and help push it back into the sea, um, which is a very um, you know very sort of powerful image. And then then there's something that happens with the whale at the end of the book, which which makes it all come full circle, which really reinforces this sort of central premise of the book, which is. You know, things are better when we work together. When we, and sometimes it might be a matter of, 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 of personal sacrifice. But if we all are looking out for each other, you know, the world is generally a better place. So it, the, the image of the whale is really powerful in this. Both throughout, you just sort of see it occasionally, just sort of frolicking in the bay, and it's there in the background, and it's and it's very symbolic, uh, without being kind of overwhelming. And again, the the way in which that whole result way it resolves itself is very much wow i wasn't expecting that at the end it so, all yeah. sounds very bucolic um do you think it, what he's saying is that people are nicer in the countryside i think there's a danger that that you could see that yeah i mean i don't think this book would work in the in the city you know the, the, the location is very much they're very much separated off they're in this little village that allows them to kind of ride out this apocalypse without noticing it's happening, um, and I think there's a danger which you could you could look at this and say, yeah, you know, let's all just go and live in the countryside and, and have bits of straw hanging out of our mouths and live this. But I don't think I don't think that that ultimately is what it comes through because it's more complicated. It has all of the the realities of of life that would fit everyone. So there is illness, there's ageing, there's death, there's bad marriages, there's there's unrequited love, all that kind of stuff which happens everywhere. So I think ultimately 
the, the sense is that these people are the same people and the, the, the location really is just a device to allow that to happen so I didn't get to the end of that again because I'm a sort of urban metropolitan sort of guy my my radar at the beginning was like oh they're all you know oh, you know God, you can't get a decent latte in this town it's, it's unacceptable <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah I think that prejudice again was, was was something I brought to I think with this I brought a lot of prejudices um, of that that kind of being being a city and didn't want didn't want perhaps didn't want to accept uh, what this book was and um, and it won me over 100 percent. i have to say so have we got any more we have another interview so um we'll, we'll let's introduce it so um it's a short one and then we'll be back talking about not forgetting the whale by john ironmonger it, it seems from what i've read about you that you started writing novels we well, started having novels published relatively late in in life for a writer I um is it something you've always done or is it something you've you've come to i've, always, I've always written blake i always um i, I I've always had a novel on the go and it's just been a hobby and I had drawers full of novels that nobody ever read apart from me and I've most lost nearly all of them actually and I never really thought about getting a novel published or had the, the self-confidence or the belief in myself as a writer to, to get anything published and it wasn't really until I, I wrote a novel back in the 1990s that I self-published uh, which is something that I recommend to people it's not a bad idea to do and it's nice to see your novel you know bound and on the bookshelf but it wasn't something that I promoted in any way or even told people about. But uh, back in about 2000, I remember it was 2010, my son read a novel I'd just written and, and he said, Dad, you know, you really ought to get this published. And I said, mm, okay, 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 I will. And I, you know, about a year went past and I didn't do anything about it. And finally um, came across the manuscript again on my PC and thought, you know what, maybe I should just send it to an agent. Uh, and I did. I sent the bits of the novel off to three separate agents. Everything went very quiet for an awful long time. And about five or six months later, I got a, an email from, from an agent who, who said, you know, I'd like to represent you. And the next thing I knew, uh, there was a sort of auction going on the manuscript, which was extremely exciting. And, uh, and I was in my 50s, so I'd been waiting a long time for it to happen. So the book was called The Notable Brain of Maximilian Ponder. That was the book that changed everything for me. And of course, yes, nominated for the, the Costa Prize. It was. Um, so, since since publication, has your the way you write changed? Do you do you approach novels differently now? Well, well, of course. You know, when you're just writing as a hobby, which is what what I've been doing all my life, you don't have a deadline, you don't have anybody to please, you don't necessarily worry too much about how long it takes. And uh, and I, you know, I think perhaps when I wrote the, the Notable Brain of Maximilian Ponder, it took me it must take me four or five years because I wasn't in a particular rush. And then, of course, I had a you know, publishers give you a a contract for two novels so you suddenly got to write another one and, and you, you suddenly sit at your desk looking at a blank screen thinking gosh what am I going to write about now and can I do it in time um, so yes you, you, I think my writing did change but it's but I still write very much part time I, I write my, my habit is just to write in the evenings I usually write from sort of about seven until eight uh, and I do three or four hundred words a day and that's fine by me and that's what I've always done and that's what I still do now Um, sorry, we we were uh, having a chat off air there and completely forgot that the that you were there. Sorry, audience. Sorry, that was the uh, third and final part of our interview with uh, John Ironmonger, uh, not forgetting uh, talking about his book, not forgetting the whale. It's uh, an excellent book. It's been called uh, absolutely brilliant by Liz Fenwick and beautifully uplifting by Kate Long. Um, I think it gets the bait. Uh, it's it's it, I, when you look at those kind of quotes in there. I think it's yeah. one of the. It's one of the few books that has a kind of glowing review from things like Essentials magazine, but also the Financial Times, yeah. um, because there is a lot of kind of stuff about the global economy in there as well. It's really um, and, and and that kind of sums up the way it really crosses a lot of barrier parameters, I think. So uh, next up, we've got the um, we've got our blog spot, mm. which is our regular uh, look from a, a blog point of view at a, a particular genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, this month, we've we've got. Uh, so it's not a blog. Leela. Yeah, it's a it's a book club. This one, book club. Mm. Oh, right. Okay, so it's a it's a, it's a book club uh, that Blake was telling us about. Um, they meet up in London uh, monthly uh, to talk about post apocalyptic books. And uh, Leela, um, Lila, Lila. Oh yeah, Lila. <laughs> he's even written down how to pronounce. I've written pronunciation um, and he's still got uh, Has told us uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about uh, the appeal of these books and recommend some for us. My name is Lila and I run the Post-Apocalyptic Book Club. We've been going since 2009. The beauty of apocalyptic and dystopian literature is that it 
without sounding too pretentious transcends genre it's in science fiction it's in fantasy it's in horror it's in lit in lit fic chick fic romance um historical it you find it under pretty much every every umbrella the great thing about that is that after well 10 years nearly of reading these books i think we've done over 100 novels in our time we have nowhere near scratched the surface of apocalyptic and dystopian literature we obviously have done the classics the canons so your day of the triffids 1984 which you know could be argued as post-apocalyptic as well as dystopian we've done um earth abides things like that and then bringing it more up to date we have read books you know from the hunger games through to station 11 by emily st john mandel to black wave by michelle t all fantastic books the great thing about the book group is that we don't necessarily always enjoy the books but we do enjoy talking about them the appeal i think for reading post-apocalyptic literature i think comes from partly some sort of kind of wish fulfillment in that you know things would be simpler if we started again afresh although i think that's kind of quite the common idea of why people like it i think that's a little bit too simple the great thing about post-apocalyptic fiction is that there is an amazing wealth of topics and things to discuss and think about a lot of the time writers are exploring ideas that are possibly a little bit too dangerous to think about now but they're the what if scenarios what would we do if this happened or how would it affect this person a lot of the times the apocalypse is just a a backdrop or a setting to make some sort of thought experiment work or it's a really great way of exploring human emotion human strength human survival it's our will to overcome something that's affecting us the the greatest thing is that it's hopeful you think that a group like that would be all doom and gloom and everyone's reveling in destruction but it, it's not it's all about our will and our power and our resilience and also about exploring really really important matters you know such as climate change or um diversity or equality or um arms things like that it's a really really sort of meaty topic to get into some of our favorite books for the group well our highest rated book was of course 1984 but it was closely followed by the girl with all the gifts by mike carey excellent excellent book that's also been made into a brilliant film um so definitely check that out my personal favorites include the war by marlon haushofer it's a very little known novel written in the early 60s by an austrian lady and it's set in the mountains of austria not long after world war ii um a family are holidaying in the mountains and everyone goes for a walk apart from the woman who's never named and they don't come back and she goes off in search of them and she finds that an invisible barrier has been put around the perimeter of the camp where she's staying she doesn't know if it's an experiment or what but she can see that everything is dead on the other side of this wall and she cannot pass further than the wall the premise is this is her notebook and she's writing down her journal and it's her testament of how she survives just loneliness not being able to go further than this wall how she provides for herself her dealing with depression and loneliness and all she has for company is a cat a dog and a cow and it's beautiful it's an absolutely stunning novel really 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 beautiful another one of my favorites is on the beach by neville shoot very very bleak but also stunning um i'll be using the word beautiful a lot the premise was world war three a cobalt bomb went off and the entire northern hemisphere was destroyed and this circle of radiation is working its way south um through the southern hemisphere and weather systems and there's just the last outpost of humanity left on the southernmost tip of australia and it's this community and how they deal with the fact that they know this radiation's coming and they have a year two tops left to live and it's how do you deal with that impending doom and it is so graceful and dignified and actually possibly my favorite book and then another honorable mention goes to grasshopper jungle which is a lot of fun it's just a brilliant book of two best friends um going about their day-to-day lives hormones raging and in the background there is a giant apocalypse by 
or An Apocalypse by Giant Praying Mantis, and it's so much fun. It's a really, really, really brilliant book. Anyway, I think I've waffled off waffled on enough um it's the post-apocalyptic book group we meet on the last tuesday of every month at the store of kings in king's cross and you can find out more about us on our meetup page thanks you're listening to the brum radio book show and that was uh, lila from the post-apocalyptic book club she sounds very well adjusted considering what they must spend all their times immersed in it sounds amazing uh, uh, blake was just telling me while we listened to that interview that They've got about two thousand members. Two thousand members online, and they meet in a in a in a pub somewhere in King's Cross uh, monthly. Um, and she said it originally it just grew out of her and her friends as we having read the road, um, you know, the Cormac McCarthy, oh, yeah, and having yeah. a book group about that, and then it kind of snowballing from there. So yeah, I mean, I can really understand. And she says it's quite interesting the range of people they have as well, because I think it's one of these things where. It seems to cut across a lot of different types of readers. So it's not one of those book clubs where they, they kind of just ten, 10 minutes discussing the book and then, you know, they're off for a bit. It's, 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 it, no, she's, yeah, but the sound of things, it's quite an intense literary discussion. Uh, Catherine had a point uh, that you were making that, what was it you said about... Um, I just think it must make you frame your everyday experience in a slightly strange way, doesn't it? If you're sort of immersed constantly in the world of the post-apocalyptic, it must... I don't know, I'd be constantly looking out for signs and portents, <laughs> you know, <laughs> embracing my family every time I left the house and things like that. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe we should. should. Exactly. Good, wise yeah, words, Blake. Exactly. And then, you know, <laughs> then you can... But again, you know, I, I can't remember... Who, there's an Australian writer, and, and I can't remember the name of the book, but one of the things that he said is that humanity is insanely optimistic because we have this whole genre of post-apocalyptic um, fiction in which there are people. We can't yeah. even accept <laughs> there is an apocalypse out there which, which actually annihilates us. We all just say, uh, yeah, so maybe, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's the ultimate optimistic art form. Discuss. So that was uh, Lila from the uh, post-apocalyptic book club um, and that was our po- uh, book what do you call it? A bog spot. Bog spot. Um, next up, we have Catherine, and uh, she's going to be talking about uh, uh, her debut. Yeah, the debut this month is Kismet by uh, Luke, and I'm going to plump for Tregit as the uh, pronunciation. That makes sense. Yep. And um, yeah, so the, the the Kismet, the the title of the book is also the title of um, an app that the book uh, is is based around a phone-based matchmaking app um, that has kind of largely replaced traditional dating. So I should possibly say this book is kind of, in, in what the lazy shorthand uh, way of describing books is, Black Mirror-esque. It's, written, yeah. it's set in a kind of very recognisable contemporary world, but one slightly altered. And so the alteration in this case is that this app has kind of taken over the whole world of traditional dating. And the way it works is that it compiles users' online data, sort of sites they visit, films they watch the photos they like etc and shows a compatibility a compatibility with passers-by as a percentage score which i think is an interesting premise i mean for me i'm not sure that would i'm not sure that's a good premise for uh, compatibility <laughs> the last thing i would ever ever want is to be put in a room with someone who has the same browsing history <laughs> no i just think that would be i mean it is the worst side of you isn't it it's the, you know the, the worst side of me actually is when i drive but second only <laughs> to driving is, is the kind of crap i look up back online in, back in the 90s in my local um, i used to live in london there's a great big sainsbury's and they used to have singles nights there where you attach this thing to your trolley and when you pushed your trolley past somebody who's shopping in some way <laughs> was compatible with you, they would ping and you could start a conversation with you them. You both have hemorrhoid <laughs> Excellent. Um, you like lettuce too. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, is, sorry. Sorry, but this is in a physical sense. So you're on the app, but it's people passing you. So um, other people who are signed up for it, uh, they'll light, a little light will come up on right. your screen and, you know, it'll tell you the percentage score. So the um, central character is Anna, who's 29, and she's already in a long-term relationship with someone called Pete. Um, but she discovers sort of accidentally that he is planning to propose to her on her 30th birthday. And she starts kind of freaking out a bit about this, starts fixating on the fact that their score is a little bit lacklustre at 70, which sounds quite high to me, but apparently isn't. Um, So she secretly rejoins Kismet, supposedly to be sure about committing to Pete. But um, obviously she starts checking out, you know, potentially more compatible partners. Um, So I guess the book poses these fundamental questions about, you know, are we supposed to strive for the greatest happiness? Is that like our duty? Or is that just kind of greedy and insane? And, you know, um, what's the difference between settling for what you've got and 
giving up on your dreams. You know, it's kind of saying where, where should you, you know, accept your happiness kind of thing, which I think is interesting. It's something that, you know, a lot of writers obviously grapple with. Um, I think Anna is really interesting character, very complex, very flawed, really, um, but still very compelling and engaging. You know, I enjoyed being in her company. I didn't always find her actions completely credible, which is mainly, I suppose, maybe just a way of me saying, oh, well, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of... Um, I mean, I suppose one of the weird things about it is I kept thinking, well, is, is marriage such a big thing? I mean, they've already got a mortgage together and they've been living together for years. To me, the fact that she was so thrown a curve by the fact that he was going to propose to her seemed slightly odd. Um, there are mentions in the book of her taking medication and there's... She clearly has some issues with her mental health and there's talk as well about her father who died a few years previously and who she's still grieving for, which I think are there to make you think, yeah, so there's reasons why she's perhaps not always acting so rationally. But for me, sometimes they didn't feel as knitted into the story as they could be to provide that kind of heft. But uh, I should say that what I think it's absolutely brilliant at and the bits I enjoyed the most was in talking about the world of work. She's a journalist and the way it describes um, the kind of compromises she has to make and the pressures and the bullshit and the corporate culture, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think, you know, he, he's he's so good at writing about work. It was so recognisable and so real but beautifully observed. I think he is a journalist, is that right? Uh, I think he works in aid. Red, red yes, oh, yes, yeah. But I, uh, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. He's, he's got that. I was going to talk to you a little bit about this. Um, he's, he's, he's got a... a uh, an MA in creative writing mm. from um, somewhere, and I just wondered: there's a sort of whole body of work by creative writing MA students. Yeah. Um, did that come across in the novel? Um, not, no. I mean, I, I don't know because I'm not sure the way in which that would come across in any way other than a kind of to use that in some sort of slightly pejorative way. Yes, I d- yeah. I, and I don't, I didn't yeah. feel that at all. I mean, I think it's he's a he's a really great um, writer. I suppose. It, the one thing I thought about it, it feels it's a 400 page long book, and whilst it's really readable and compelling, I certainly felt that at the same time it could have been quite a bit shorter. You yeah. know, it, it, it's sort of slightly, um, but there's a slight unevenness in sometimes her character seems really nuanced and well developed, and other times a little bit thin and sketchy. But that sounds quite critical, and it, overall, I think it's a really good book. And as I say, in his descriptions of the world of work, brilliant. I would say it's a little bit reminiscent of two books we've talked about before. Um, well, not reminiscent of, but treading some of the same territory as Not Working by Lisa Owens and The Transition yes, by um, Luke Kennard. Yeah. Um, so I think, as, 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 you know, as Mike Cheesemonger would say, you know, if you enjoyed those, <laughs> yeah. then go out and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I think it's an, it's an interesting point that the world of work seems to be something that that debut novelists seem to want to write about. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, uh, Lisa Owens did that really well in Not Working, that sort of... And it was a similar sort of idea of, like, what are we, is she supposed to settle for a job that she doesn't really love? You suppose, And I think that is really interesting, you know, to what extent is this going after your dreams just you know, this obsession with being happy, mm. is it just sort of folly? I think that's, that's as, you know, we said this before when we, when we had um, broadcast uh, by Liam Brown when we talked about, you know, why else, what else would young writers write about apart from work and technology? Yeah. You know, that yeah. seems, obviously in love, yeah. you know, it seems to be, what else is there for them? Um, yeah. What else is there for any of us to discuss? But it, I suppose it's interesting because it's, it's that kind of contrast where... where when you spent a long time not working, it's yeah. a real shock to the system to be kind of thrown into this world where people expect things of you on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, well, for me, I love it because although, as you say, you know, now it's something that people write about more and more, I think historically it's something that people didn't write about that much. Mm. It was kind of this, you know, I've always thought that work is this thing that takes up most of our lives and yet is largely invisible. We very rarely know exactly even what our friends do. It's no, like, I don't know, yeah. does something with computers. Well, it's like when, you know. when The Office came out on TV, what a yeah. big, the, one of the reasons that was, was such a success was just like, well, that's, that's what work is like. Yeah. And yeah. it very very rarely actually popular representatives. And I always thought it was because, you know, writers and the people that produce this stuff haven't, you know, haven't, haven't had a proper job for, yeah. <laughs> for 20 yeah. years. And maybe that's why these debut writers are the ones to, think, <laughs> to address it for us. I think that's absolutely true. I think true. it's a really good point to make. Because yeah. I've not been in an office for 20 years. So <laughs> I, I, I do sort of struggle to kind of give my characters yeah. real yeah. grounded jobs. And so 
people think I'm sometimes weird, but when I meet them, I'm actually fascinated to hear about their daily lives because, you know, my daily life is me and a computer. Yeah. We should, yeah. For our listeners, we should point out that um, although we are here in a workplace, Mike is still wearing his dressing gown. <laughs> <laughs> he has lost touch with reality. Oh, he has, a we, long time We ago. have to tell him what day of the week it is. <laughs> So, yeah, that sounds an interesting one. So, that is not yet released, is it? It's coming out, did we say May? It's coming out in May. Yeah, and I should say as well, I think when I was looking into it, it's not, strictly speaking, a debut, because I believe he's written a novel before that won a prize, but it didn't get published. I don't know why it didn't get published. Maybe they're saving it up for later or something. But um, anyway, it's his first published. So, that's Kismet by Luke Triggett. So we're nearly at the end of the show um, but before we wrap up I'd love to hear what everybody's reading um, um, what well, I'm reading, uh, and I've been saving this up for a while, Madness is Better Than Defeat by Ned Bowman. Um, and um, You're a big Ned Bowman Regular fan, listeners will know I'm a big Ned Bowman fan, and this is his latest book, his fourth novel, and it's a, a romp, it's fair to say. It's set in the 1930s um, with two rival expeditions visiting some um, South American ruins in the jungle, one of which is there to disassemble the ruins and take them back to America, and the other who are there to make a film. Um, and they arrive at the same time, and um, all sorts of shenanigans uh, ensue, and it is, as usual with Nem Bowman, just, just mind-boggling, crazy situations hilarious really fascinating cast of characters and um absolutely loving it how about you andrew um i'm reading oh, should we give him a microphone i may have mentioned last time i'm rereading all the ian m banks culture novels in advance of the amazon blah blah etc um so i'm on to the short story collection the state of the arts but i've got a pile of stuff to take away on holiday with me next week as and well. are you enjoying it though i love it yeah and what are you taking with you on holiday Oh mate, a pile of stuff so ridiculous I couldn't just, even tell you. Yeah. Is it just a just a it book literally is, like, like the, shorts? Yeah, basically, yeah. No shorts, it's gonna rain all week, mate, I'm sorry. Oh right. <laughs> but more reading. And how about you, Stuart? Good. Uh I'm reading a proof, I've just started it, of David Peace's new book. Oh, right. Okay. He's an interesting author, isn't he? Yeah. Because uh, he d- writes these strange football books. But he also has got a thing about Japan mm. and his new book is is kind of called Patient X, comes out on the 5th of April, and it's based on the writings of Jap- uh, probably the biggest ever Japanese author, whose name I'm going to try and pronounce, uh, it's Rain Soke Akutagawa. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, exactly. But it's pronounced Treadget. <laughs> yes, I think it is. Uh, at least I can say that and not initials. Uh, so... Uh, but, you know, he's such a, an interesting writer and, and it feels so different to anything he's done before. But he's got a legion of fans who follow him pretty much wherever oh, yeah. he goes, which is just he quite is rare, very lucky isn't that, it? isn't it? Because he, he wrote The Damn United, yeah. um, which was made into film and is, you know, is... Is a very different to than he originally. Is, he burst on the scene with those Red Riding he novels, did, which yeah. are about kind of yeah. the Yorkshire Ripper and stuff. Yeah. I think, yeah, excellent. And Catherine, what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm about to start reading the um, the last Magnus Mills one, the Forensic Records Society, which oh. I really wanted to read when it came out, but I didn't. Just I just was thinking about him then when we were talking about people writing about work, as I think he is the the best at writing about work, and I love his stuff. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Fantastic. And um, finally, um, I'm reading um, How Hard Can It Be, which is Alison Pearson's uh, follow-up to um, I Don't Know How She Did It, How She Does It. And uh, it's so far, I've only just, literally just started it, but uh, it's it's her, I suppose, 10 years on, and uh, juggling sort of ageing parents and teenage kids and marriage and meltdown and it's it's very funny so two out of the three of those things sound like they have resonance for you i'm i'm not gonna i'm just gonna leave it like that yeah i'm trying trying to work out which which is which but um (laughs) so uh, that's us um that has been a great show i think if that's not too cheesy catherine a little bit but that's okay you're allowed join us again here on your super (laughs) sore away drum radio and remember to uh go on to our website you can't do it blake you can't do you don't have the necessary I'm just, I'm trying to, I think it's been a great show. <laughs> I've really a, enjoyed it. It's been a delightful show. Um, a huge thank you to, to Catherine. Thank you, Mike. Uh, and to Stuart from Waterstones. Thank you so much. And to Andrew, who's been doing all our internet stuff and producing. And thank you kindly. Amazing things. 
obviously to Blake as well. Thank you. Um, next book's book of the month, fingers crossed, is, is going to be uh, Ruth Hogan, and it's her book, uh, The Keeper of Lost Things. The Keeper things. of Lost Things, that's mm. it, yeah. So, uh, fingers crossed, that's what's going to be our, our next next month's book of the month. So, have a look out for that and see if you can get a hold of copy, read it, and uh, you can read along with us and talk about it with us. Um, that's it. We're go- we're going to say goodbye. That's it. Thank you, everyone, and um, stay tuned for more fantastic music here (laughs) on Brum Radio. Thanks for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please consider joining our listener supporters. You can do this by clicking the support tab on our website will go direct to Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Brum Radio. Brum Radio shows are streamed online at the Brum Radio Mixcloud page and you can find more podcasts at brumradio.com.